my chakras would be shocked for us. <laughs> oh god. Oh god, it's gonna be one of those. It's gonna be one of those nights. Good morning, good day, and good evening. And good night. Good night. Welcome. To the Insomnia Report. Episode 28. Wildcard episode. I'm Margo. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're the two friends and roommates that like to talk about the things that keep us up at night. night. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you have listened before, welcome back. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for listening. Yeah. We are actually staying up at night because it's one in the morning. <laughs> this is the latest. We have normally we stop recording at one in the morning. Yeah. We're pushing our limits and it's gonna be great. But it's okay because it's not a I was about to say school night. It's not a work night. <laughs> not a work night. I had a dream that I was back in high school the other day. No, I did last night. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have one of those where like like you're suddenly back in high school but you don't remember how you got there and you don't remember your schedule or know where you're going and then you like like it's for me it's always like the math class where like I show up one day and they're like you haven't been here in three months because I like forgot the class schedule or something and then I failed the class oh. see if I were to lose my schedule and get lost I'd go hang out with Dita the cookie lady at the cafeteria was that her name Dita yeah she was great she was those cookies yes. were great. So good. They were just like hot dough. You could eat it with a spoon. Like you had you to. You had to because yeah. you could not pick it up. It had oh, to be in a so bowl. Good. It was so good. Uh, we had a lady um, in college. Her name was, I think her name was Fran. And she was like the nicest lady ever. And you walk by and she goes, good morning, sunshine. Oh my God. And she's like, if you look sad, she'd be like, just take a fruit, baby. Just take a fruit. I love that. Franny. <laughs> she was so nice. We need more Frannies in oh, the world. I know. That energy. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. I had a friend who was working with a, a job recruiter. And when they were on the phone with this woman, her name was ironically joy and on the phone she was like oh my gosh great i'm so excited whatever and i'm like i <laughs> like i know the second she hangs up she's probably like ah. <laughs> oh god anyway is that what's kept you up <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what's kept me up like my story has kept me up this thing that i'm working on yeah me today too. me too so, yeah, the other night I watched a movie about it. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> the funniest. It was 2 a.m. Like, we both stayed up, like, till 2 a.m. every night researching both of our topics. I get a, a text at 2. It was an Insta DM. It was an Insta. She slid into my DMs at 2. And normally when that happens, I'm like, what do you, like, what? But <laughs> she goes, Marco, are you awake? So she literally, you upped me. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, what's up? And she goes, I 
I'm so scared. <laughs> I, we have to throw away all of our pots and pans. I'm like, oh no, it happened. She cracked. <laughs> it happened. I thought it would be me. <laughs> it happened to you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And you're like, it's this documentary I'm watching. Like, we have to do it. I hate capitalism. And I'm like, okay, like whatever. I trust you. And you're like, I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah. What's kept you up? I've been thinking about how... Like, I can touch on it later, but how screwed up my algorithm is going to be after this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I probably am on a lot of watch lists now, so. You think, like, the FBI has you on a, oh, yeah. a list? Oh, my, 100%. Yeah? Yeah. I'll explain. Well. You'll know why. May not be a bad thing. I don't know how that would be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Well, I have nothing to hide, you know? Right. So, I guess, like, I don't care. Like, yeah. They already know everything about me. That's true. You know? That's why it's dumb that people are like, the vaccines have a microchip. Because it's like, no, the government already knows everything it's about It's called you. a phone. It's what you're tweeting right now, Deborah. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to light the candle. Okay. Another thing that's kept me up at night is, unfortunately, another police shooting. Um, Makia Bryant, she was 16, shot and killed by Columbus police. So... Yeah, awful. Um, and I will link in the description, or we will. You're editing. Haha. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you have to. Um, we'll link in the description some resources. I was trying to get some ASMR sound. And, like, One of these days, you're gonna set your mic on fire. <laughs> I was thinking about this actually. Where we don't have a fire extinguisher. Do we? No, we do not. Is there one in the hallway somewhere? I haven't seen no. one. No, there's not. Should we, like, ask about that? We could probably get one. All right, I'm ready to hear your story. I'm so curious about what it is. Okay. It's something I've been wanting to cover in one way or another forever. And since it's wild card, there's no rules here. No rules at all. So I want to give a shout-out to my coworker Charlotte. She had an influence on this topic. She's a gem. She gave me a suggestion and then I went down a huge rabbit hole from it. And as you know, I have always been fascinated with all aspects of psychology and what makes people tick and why people are the way that they are. And I do this a lot when I look in the mirror and I say to myself, why are you like this? Why? Oh. <laughs> and as you know, hence a big portion of our podcast, myself and many others are fascinated in true crime philosophy, development, and topics that are all under an umbrella of odd. But something that ties into all of those things brings up a question that has been debated over time. Are we born good and our environment makes us bad? Or have we been bad and our environment makes us good? Nature versus nurture. Exactly. Plato believed that we inherit intelligence from our family, so everything is hereditary. But Aristotle thought that we are born a blank canvas and we learn as we go. Tabula rasa. What? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I don't know if we talked about it in college. I don't, don't think it was Aristotle. It was John something. Hume? Locke. John Locke. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Tabula rasa. It wasn't until the 1800s that Francis Galton 
coined nature versus nurture for the first time. However, this while this is a broad topic, I want to hone in on the concept of personality disorders mm. in its own. I just watched a video while I was going down my YouTube <laughs> rabbit hole before I started watching Survivor Man. And it's this Australian girl who's a diagnosed sociopath. And she was talking about like her mm-hmm. life and like she's engaged and like, you know, how, like how relationships work and stuff. It's really interesting. That is anyway. very interesting. So you might have insight on this. I don't. Okay. I'm not implying that anyone, you know, with a disorder of any kind is good or bad, but I wanted to look at traits and characteristics of some people in particular or we'll we'll go into it, but before I dive in, disclaimer, it should be known that this is the information on our podcast in today's episode is solely for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are our own. Our words are not to treat or diagnose any condition. And if you feel that you fall into a category or want to know more, please seek a certified professional. Listener discretion is advised. I am not liable for, like, no, don't. We are not uh, mental health professionals. I am not a professional. We are just two girls. Two friends having a conversation. Sitting in our dining room. Just wanted to give that little tidbit there. What are personality disorders and how are they diagnosed? According to the American Psychiatric Association, professionals utilize a tool called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM for short. The DSM is, quote, the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world. It's used as a guide to diagnose mental disorders. So the DSM contains descriptions, symptoms, and other criteria for diagnosing mental disorders. We are currently in the fifth edition, which was published in May of 2013. The DSM was first established in 1952, and I think you and I both can agree that there's been a lot of changes in mental and neurological development since then. Yeah. (laughs) I concur. I'd say so. (laughs) Maybe. You know, at the time, professionals thought that all problems were ones that you were born with or they were all physical. In 1918, the American Medic Psychological Association created the, quote, statistical manual for the use of institutions for the insane. Nice. (laughs) Which was really the first, like, how-to guide for disorders and it provided like what counted as a disorder i mean keep in mind at the time there wasn't as much as we know nor did they have like developed treatment or like they also thought that being like homosexual was a disorder you know Mm. so it's not um as we know and instead of everything being what we are born with, we know that the environment has a big impact on this too. So more on that later. For a while, the manual was like fine, I guess. And that was (laughs) until World War II when the men came home, experienced post-effects of the war from the horrors that they saw. And it made, you know, the professionals think, Maybe it isn't just physical. Mm. <laughs> so in World War One, there was 
also cases of this. But this too was described as quote-unquote shell shock. And it was treated as having your nerves like rocked. Mm -hmm. So it was like another physical thing. But now we know it's diagnosed as PTSD. So even after the first war, it still wasn't tied to mental. The differences this time around after the second war was previously doctors thought disorders were lifelong. So if you had any physical symptoms or anything like that, like you would know basically early on. But the men, when they left for war, they were all healthy and, you know, totally fine. So a new guide was written. So like I said, we are now on DSM-5 and there were a huge amount of changes that went into it and it was largely it was largely debated among most uh, psychologists and I won't go too deep into it today but essentially it it made it more of a like range of diagnosis so some criticism of it was it could be you know you might see more people getting diagnosed with things that they typically wouldn't so like the range is more like on a scale and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, you're feeling like it could be this or instead of, you know, the DSM one, two, three, four, it's it's going to be an ongoing development like forever and ever. So it's going to be 5.1, 5.2. Mm, okay. So there's also an organization called or there's also a guide called the International Classification of Diseases or the ICD for short. And that is published by the World Health Organization. And both are typically streamlined with the diagnosis criteria and their similarities and differences. But I will be focusing on the DSM because that's what's used in America. So psychological disorders are typically used interchangeably with mental disorders, psychiatric disorders, or mental illness. And collectively, the DSM defines a mental disorder as a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognitive, emotional, and behavior that results in a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental process underlying mental functioning. They usually are, mental disorders are usually associated with significant stress in social occupational, or other important activities, according to Very Well-Minded. When you think of, you know, mental health and you think of, you know, disorders or diagnosis, there's your eating disorders, there's your sleep disorders like insomnia, or there's anxiety, panic, schizophrenia, PTSD, depression, OCD, you know. There are obviously more. There are about 200 different kinds of subcategories, So the thing with mental diagnosis that's so tricky is the brain is obviously very complex Mm -hmm. and mental health can be all over the place and it could be a, you know, well, I'm feeling this way or like, what is it really tied to? Or like, how long has this been? Or are they exaggerating because they want to get like a certain prescription or, you know, is that really the case? Or, you know, you could be feeling depressed but it's not the underlying issue you're feeling depressed because something else isn't being treated it's not Mm, like a mm -hmm. oh i'm going to take an x-ray and see your bone is broken right so 
As for personality disorders, um, this is defined as an inner experience or a way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that deviates from the expectations of the culture. Um, so you go against social norms, you cause distress, or you have problems functioning, and it hinders relationships or it creates an inability to relate to people and it lasts over a long period of time. The DSM-5 recognizes 10 kinds of personality disorders, and they're broken into three different groups or clusters. So you got your A, B, and C. They're based on similar characteristics or symptoms. So cluster A is characterized as the odd cluster, and this can be any sort of strange or erratic behavior. So you have Paranoid, which is where you have like distrust and you're super suspicious of everything and you think, you know, there's a microchip it and you, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> or, you know, the Illuminati or, oh, yeah, you know, everything. Seizoid, which is a detachment or you have limited emotion in social situations. So it could be like apathetic, like loner type. It's just like me, like all the time. Hmm. Sociotypical, which is problems with behavior, and you are not likely to have close relationships. Uh, WebMD quoted it as magical thinking, so you think mm-hmm. you can influence people through mind control or telepathy. Oh, so, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So if I were to be like looking at you, I'm not trying. By no means am I making fun of anyone that mm. has like it. But if I'm looking at you and I'm like, you're gonna take a sip of your water, you're gonna take a sip of your water, and then you do like, I'm gonna be like, ha, mm-hmm. I did it, right? Anyone in cluster A are like I said, odd, but that doesn't mean they have a psychological disorder or or schizophrenia per se. Like it could be kind of an umbrella thing, but it's it's more of a like an ongoing just weird thing versus like a a neurological Mm. brain chemistry more so um, because schizophrenia is a different tier but you could be in category a okay and have schizophrenia like they're not the same Mm -hmm. because it's the personality versus the neurology Mm, like a cluster of personality traits yeah Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah yeah it does like i said i'm not a psychologist or a neurologist i don't know okay who are you isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? <laughs> Groupie is labeled as dramatic, emotional, erratic, unpredictable, or have an impulsive thinking or behaviors. Mm. So here you got your borderline, which is a pattern of unstable, impulsive anger, and you have a very fragile self-image. So you go through ups and downs. You are in unstable relationships. You have like an increased fear of abandonment but you want them to love you so bad and then all of a sudden you'll be like no I hate you Mm. and you don't want to be alone but then you hate that person it's just you're you're kind of all over the place with with this one and then you have hysteronic which is drama queen to the extreme you are dramatic and very extreme and exaggerated you tend to be superficial and you do anything for attention. And it's not just like the narcissism aspect, but it's like you have such a desire or need for attention, you will do very dramatic or inappropriate things mm. to get it. Like 
an extreme like I crave it I need it Mm -hmm. I will literally like jump off this building for attention you know oh yeah that's not good right like don't do that (laughs) I read this in one article I don't know the exact one but they will say like I'm gonna kill myself like to oh right Mm -hmm. to get like the attention that they're craving right so then you have narcissistic and they lack empathy they think that they're poop doesn't stink they don't recognize other people's needs so they will basically like step on them to have this drive for power and they really want success and they tend to use manipulation to get it and now there's antisocial which is a violation and disregard for rights of others uh it includes consistent lying or petty crimes uh you can con others you could be aggressive and you lack remorse in group three you have your anxious and fearful cluster so one is avoidant which is you are it's not avoidant like i'm not gonna go do anything i mean it could be but they're more so hypersensitive to criticism and they're Mm. they're so panicked that they tend to isolate themselves um you have dependent so we have like stage five clingers they always need to be taken care of they fear rejection um and they only feel safe when they are in relationships that are where they feel they're being taken care of Hmm. and then you have obsessive compulsive disorder which is not the same as oh like ocd in the other sense, it's where you are a perfectionist who needs order and they are so rigid in their patterns because it's not one specific pattern that they have these compulsions about. It's it's like everything needs to be in order, like everything mm-hmm. needs to be perfect. So it's a more extreme case of that. Now, according to Mayo Clinic, people who have personality disorders may not realize something is wrong. Or they view it as what's called egocentric, which is often blaming other people or exterior things. Uh, whereas people with mood disorders are ego dystonic, which is where they feel uncomfortable. They're like, okay, I keep washing my hands mm-hmm. and I know it's wrong. Like, some, like mm-hmm. why do I keep doing this? Or I'm feeling very depressed or like, detached like i i want to like talk to someone about it versus like no like this is they're they're aware something's wrong so that's like the main difference between personality which is where it's like Mm -hmm. you're in a a different element of right thinking because it's like who you are right that's that's exactly like it that's why it's personality disorder versus like a mood disorder or Mm -hmm. what have you so think of it this way personality disorders are how you are coded or wired whereas a disorder like anxiety or depression or bipolar is where your state is right now or Mm. it could have happened because something happened so Mm -hmm. it's a result of it or you're currently in that place okay so that makes sense yeah so for the remainder of today's program i'm going to focus on cluster b Um, And that's where I tied in, can tie into earlier about what I said on, I'm I'm curious about what makes people tick. Mm -hmm. So some things that I'm always, that are always on my mind is like, for one thing, what can make someone do such a horrendous crime or 
why do people not realize that their neighbor or family member was living a double life? Or, you know, oh, he was the pillar of the community. Like, how did I not see it before? Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, most serial killers have a personality disorder. Oh, wow. But not all that have a personality disorder are serial killers. Right. When you think of a serial killer, you think of like Hannibal Lecter. You think of a, a crazy like the the Hollywood has made it into a like if you are schizophrenic. I like I touched on the Watcher episode. Like if you have schizophrenia, then you are a madman. Or mm-hmm. you know, all serial killers are geniuses with high IQs and what have you. But that's not actually the case and um it actually shows that most people who are serial killers are actually of an average iq oh i didn't know that so they're about like 94 95 i have no idea what iq numbers mean all right antisocial personality disorder is the most common among serial killers yet according to the fbi they estimate that one percent of all homicides are serial killers. The annual homicide rate is about 15,000 in the U.S. So that's about 150 serial killers a year or serial murders. So if there are 15,000 murders in the U.S. every year, Mm -hmm. 150 of those murders are by serial killers. Ooh, I don't like that. I don't either. Um, Okay. So you can... Sit with that fact. Thank that's you. according to Discover Magazine. Didn't want to know that. Well, you do now. <laughs> Good night. Can't unknow it. <laughs> it's, it's there. It's in your brain. With the DSM-5 or the ICM, you actually won't find sociopath or psychopath as a diagnosis. However, sociopaths and psychopaths fall within antisocial personality disorder. Mm. So what do you think when you hear a psychopath or a sociopath? Like someone who's very charming but doesn't feel empathy for other people. That's that's 100% it, yep. They're often used interchangeably. However, they do share similarities and differences. They they can be viewed as patterns within someone who has antisocial personality disorder. And the clinical term is recognized by both sociopaths and psychopaths share three common traits. So one is that they are very conceited. The other one is they are deceitful. And the last one is that they are manipulative. Mm. So a sociopath tends to be more hot-headed. They are impulsive. They are liars. They are unstable. And they typically can't keep a job. They're moving around a lot. They tend to be of a little bit of a lower IQ. or And they tend to be involved in crimes that are like petty or, or theft. Or they tend to be con artists. Um, and they don't have a regard for rules or jobs. Now, a psychopath, on the other hand, they are more calculated. They are malicious. And they are cold-hearted. So you got a hot head and a cold heart. So mm, those are the- it's like Edward Cullen and Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Actually, though. Kind actually, of, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. 
You're so right, though. Because Jacob was the wolf and he was warm, but he like had a temper. Yeah. And then Edward was the cold vampire, but he was like calculated and really smart. And oh my God, you solved it. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> you solved it. Okay. So the main differences between the two. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, I love it. It's perfect. No, that's uh, that's actually very, I'm just a cold-blooded killer. I mean, he was. You need to stay away from it. Edward's, Edward. Uh, Edward. He, I'm not even going to try to psychoanalyze Edward. But So the differences between them are sociopaths have a limited ability to form attachments. It's not impossible but it is difficult. Mm-hmm. So they have a smaller conscious and they actually tend to be more aware of what they're doing is wrong. They just don't care. Mm-hmm. But you have like no remorse for your actions. And psychopaths cannot form real attractions. They are superficial. They cannot feel any empathy. They have self-control and they can be known as, quote, skilled actors because they blend in wherever they need to because they are educated they are charming they are trustworthy and they even have steady admirable jobs however their emotions are shallow and that's something that you can if you're when you're you're talking to a psychopath it's you know even if they are very charming it it doesn't go deeper than the surface Mm, that's terrifying it is So actually what's more terrifying is they also take on roles of power, including CEOs, surgeons, lawyers, cops, and salesmen. Why am I not surprised? I'm not at all either, but CEOs are like the number one. Great. I mean, it makes sense. We'll hear more about that later. Yeah, so psychopaths can also be political leaders. They can be managers or CEOs because they appear to be intelligent, sincere, powerful, charming, witty, and, you know, good communicators. Cute. Something to also note, let's say you and I are watching, we're in an assessment and a really disturbing image or video like pops up. A normal person, they react to this and their palms get sweaty, they have an increased heart rate, they they react to it. Whereas in a psychopath, they don't mm. react to it. So going to take a sidestep here because I want to discuss narcissistic personality disorder. And there are some branches within. Narcissistic personality disorders have different branches, as I said. So there is grandiosity, which is defined as an unrealistic, elevated belief that one is superior. It is more so than just being arrogant because Mm. there can be people that are narcissistic because, you know, they do like praise themselves or like take credit for a lot of things. But this is to the extent where they don't realize it or they literally think everyone else is like stupid or incompetent. Mm. Mm -hmm. all the time. Those with uh, narcissistic personality disorders will actually hang around people that they believe are less than who they are to make them look better. Mm. And they also tend to pry on people that are more vulnerable or so they can manipulate them and feel like a sense of power. Some can have traits of narcissism on occasion, 
But like I said, true narcissists will disregard others' feelings or they they just don't understand. Mm. If anyone goes against them, they or, – or take away their spotlight or give them criticisms, they can show rage or get defensive. The other one is vulnerability. No, there's actually a vulnerable narcissism, and I didn't know about this one. Hmm. But what I found interesting, so even though they think that they're hotter, smarter, better, faster, stronger, they actually have a very low self-esteem and self-worth. So they tend to act out in an effort to mask their feelings of being inadequate. Hmm. So if they don't get the attention or ego boost that they're looking for, they might feel anxious or they feel shame or like even offended. So I thought that was really interesting because like, I, yeah, I didn't know that. But most of the time they feel like a low self-worth, which is why they're trying to like hype themselves up as something that they're not mm-hmm. because they can't come to terms with how they're feeling about themselves. Yeah. Um, they're also very entitled, by the way. Oh, so, in 1964, a man named Eric Fromm, he was German or Bavarian, oh. Erich Fromm, uh, he was a so- social psychologist, and he first coined the term malignant narcissism. Uh, and according to Webster Dictionary, it defines malignant as passionately and resentlessly malevolent or aggressively malicious. According to psychology today, it's a severe kind, destructive pathology, and it lies in the root of inhumane acts, and Fromm described it as, quote, the quintessence of evil. Great. So, good stuff. Love that. Then in the 70s, it was expanded upon by a man named Otto uh, Kernberg. And he had an article published in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Association. And according to him, he thought that this type of narcissism is a syndrome characterized by the narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial features, paranoid traits, and an egocentric aggression. So it's like a smorgasbord of, of horrible stuff, of, of bad things. Yeah. So they're aggressive when they feel their grandiose is threatened. Their antisocial traits make them have little to no remorse, and they don't care about breaking the rules or lying. So some mental health experts explain this as the most severe personality disorder. Um, It's not recognized in the DSM. So you can't be like diagnosed with this, but it is a form of narcissism that is extremely severe and it can fall into like a subcategory of narcissism, but there's no black and white criteria to be this. I, th- I think it's just because it's so extreme and rare mm-hmm. and the people that have fallen into like this category are Hitler wow. and Stalin. Well, huh. I didn't know about that one either. I didn't either. So now that you've had your crash course in psychology and neurology and, you know, abnormal psychology and everything, I'm taking it further and I'm going to talk about uh, serial killers specifically right Ooh. now. So according to the FBI, so this is the part where I was like, oh my God, like everything in my search history <laughs> is like, how do serial killers get away with a double life? And like, <laughs> oh my what God. do the FBI, like, how does the FBI, like, 
analyze a crime scene and then i was actually looking at jobs at the fbi because i was like what oh, would it be like to be an agent but you have to it's do a very intense you have to do process. yeah you have to do a very intense like physical exam too and i was like mm, no, yeah no no so according to the fbi a serial killer or a serial murder consists of the following criteria one or more offender so sometimes they work in duos there has to be two or more murdered victims the incidents should be occurring in separate events at different times and the periods between the murders are longer so there's a quote-unquote like cool down period Mm -hmm. which is what separates them from a serial murder or from a mass murder it was combined with you know, various ideas which essentially made the fallen definition, which is a serial murder is the unlawful killing of two or more victims by the same offender in separate events. So a serial murder is different from a mass murderer because a mass murder is when multiple people are killed at one location at like one time. So unfortunately, those are school shootings or you know Mm -hmm. horrible events but that's like what a mass murder is compared to a mass murderer got it or a mass killing like a serial killer i mean yeah so the fbi states that there's no one generic template as to what makes up a serial killer so it's a combination of developmental um there's like not one single factor that you can pinpoint there's no one trait there's no one demographic um the traits and methods of serial killers can vary from their motives to their behavior at the crime scene you can have a killer that is completely organized and they're very careful and they're when you think of the black dahlia like she was placed Mm -hmm. in a a very particular way right and you know they're calculated whereas there's a disorganized killer which you know tends to be the more like reactive and those tend to be the causes of a sociopath because Mm -hmm. they tend to be more Mm hot-headed there are factors that have correlations or similarities and the fbi did state that they typically see common patterns within these killings, such as sensation seeking. So that can typically be the mass murder. They're like looking for attention. But typically with serial killers, there is the lack of remorse or guilt. There can be impulsive patterns. They have the need for power or control, or they have predatory behavior. So these are all traits that are consistent with antisocial personality disorder. Mm. Now, as I had mentioned earlier, not all people with mental illness or personality disorders, you know, are violent or criminals or serial killers or anything. And not all sociopaths are killers. Not all killers are sociopaths, like as I had said, Mm -hmm. or psychopaths. But what we do know based on many studies of criminals or you know, convicted murderers or killers is psychology does play a big role. So this goes back to nature versus nurture. So in short, it's both. It's a it's a combination mm, of things. Not an easy answer. Right. It, nothing is though. No. But think of it this way. Psychopaths 
are born, sociopaths are made. Mm. The FBI further states that there is no makeup of what leads to a serial killer's pathway, but it is a combination of genetics and social and environmental factors. Mm. When it comes to genetics, neurologists have conducted thousands of PET scans of the brains, and what they've found is the brain of normal people compared to criminals, compared to convicted murderers, is the brains of the people who convicted homicide demonstrated reduced activity in certain parts of the brain. This includes the prefrontal cortex, so that's right behind your eyeballs, and it's the region that's important for monitoring social behavior. It controls rage, Ah. impulsiveness, and further, it processes your moral and ethical decision-making. So there's less or no activity in that portion of the brain if you are convicted of homicide. As a psychopath or just in general? General. So they looked at brains of convicted murderers, regular criminals, and normal people. Okay. So the brains of the people that did have homicide had the lower activity Mm -hmm. in, in that cortex. Further, there's the amygdala, and that plays a role in processing emotions. And in serial killers, it was like nothing. It was like tiny. Like so strange. Nothing was there. Wow. This can either be, you know, something from birth or like development. So that is something that, you know, is obvious. Or it could have been like a brain injury. Mm. There are also two genes that are associated with violent crime. And these two genes are factors of, again, impulsive behavior and aggression. There's the MOA gene or the MOA gene mutation, but when it's mutated, so this gene is called the warrior gene because it regulates serotonin in the brain. So when it is mutated, then you can be predisposed to violent behavior. Oh, wow. There's also CDH13. It has been identified as a risk gene for ADHD or also neurodevelopment or psychiatric conditions such as depression or substance abuse or violent behavior so you know it's just like a a little box of like bad news Mm. in this situation because if you have the smaller activity in the brain and then you have both of these gene disorders or mutations you could be at further risk so Mm. you know a lot of people might have this mutation a lot of people might have this lower activity in the brain but since they're predisposed to having these different reactions what happens in their environments would make them more susceptible to acting in a different way Mm -hmm. so there are cases where people have you know violent genes and lower activity but because they are in a better environment they don't have they've never killed anyone you know um like they have a happy childhood right they Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there is a psychologist by the name of Robert Hare, or I'm sorry, Dr. Robert Hare. And in the 80s, he was studying inmates and he observed that some of them actually weren't showing any emotion such as fear or love. Mm. So he developed a checklist based on 20 different traits to determine psychopathy 
and he rated each question zero to two. Okay. This includes things like lying, lack of remorse, superficial charm, um, and this is according to Smithsonian. And you could get a possible 40 points, and that is like the max you can get. And if you score 30 or higher, you are 28 times more likely to be a homicide offender. Oh my gosh. Like most people have, I think it averages like 5 or 10. This method is, it's helpful to evaluate people, but like on, when you think about day-to-day life, it's really hard to pinpoint because like we've mentioned, psychopaths are hard to detect in public because they are so calculated they are so you know there there are these actors they blend in wherever they're needed they're not going to just be like hey right can i take that test (laughs) i'm a psychopath i'm a psychopath (laughs) which you know brings me to my next point is how could this pillar of the community be a murderer Mm. like how could it have happened because they work the system they mislead they live a double life they they like they know how to play people to get them to do what they want Mm -hmm. there are instances where people have been married for 20 years and they had no idea that they could be capable of doing this because terrifying it is it's uh, one article i read it was in oxygen because they were talking about a new true crime documentary or something But they spoke to a professional and the professional said, one way you can detect a psychopath is they have low affect and they just don't react to much emotionally or when they do, when they're putting on that charm, it's very superficial. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. go deeper. So they could be like talking you up or whatever, but it's like, haha, like, right. When it comes to nurture, it is statistical that most serial killers have experienced some kind of abuse so that could be verbal sexual physical or neglect and while not all people obviously who go through some sort of abuse become killers because of their chemical makeup like i said they are more susceptible or vulnerable to not know how to cope with it or they Mm. don't have that support system in order to properly handle it that's so sad and this can cause them to further disassociate when they are committing the act because they don't have that comfort or that Mm -hmm. developmental ability to relate to other people which is really sad yeah because of that neglect they are coping with that emptiness of rejection at the same time Mm. so it's also said that some serial killers do have a low self-esteem even though that they are like put it on this act or anything and you know they're they're learning how to cope with it or i think i there was like one serial killer who was ashamed that he was gay mm. and he did it because it was like a kind of a projection wow. where he couldn't like admit to it additionally when it comes to men and women there are women but men tend to be socialized to be more aggressive at a young age Mm. or when they show aggression at a young age it tends to be more tolerated Mm -hmm. so that's also something that you know it's not necessarily a red flag unless they're like you know killing animals it is true though that men make up 85 percent of serial killers and male serial killers are six times more likely to kill a stranger oh my god so women make up 15 percent 
and they tend to kill people they know, which, you know, when you think about it, they kill their husbands Mm -hmm. or their lovers or their motive is more so financially related or Mm -hmm. for like revenge, whereas male serial killers, they tend to be more random or sexually driven according to an article from Discovery. So for women, uh, they kill for money 52% of the time, where men kill for sex 75% of the time. Wow. Women killers also tend to either kill over longer periods of time and their methods tend to be, quote, silent or not as messy, Mm -hmm. which is perhaps why they're not as commonly known or it's easier to pass it up or it's not as obvious because they tend to use poison so Mm -hmm. like that kind of stereotype of arsenic or suffocation and male serial killers are a lot more aggressive and like this is really disturbing but they tend to kill in a much more like up close and personal because Mm -hmm. psychopaths like the control of being able to murder their victim and like literally watch them die i'm sorry it's like they one article stated that like it's euphoric for them when they get to kill them well that's not good yeah no it's not (laughs) so another thing is when you think about like the difference between women and men serial killers is like i don't know name off like random serial killers you know about ed bundy john wayne gacy Golden State Killer. They're all men. Yeah. Well, yes. Except for that lady in, uh, where was it, Florida? That old lady. Oh, my God, yeah. Who, like, killed all of her tenants for their insurance money. Oh, she was horrible. I mean, yes, those two. A lot of serial killers of women, they're given nicknames that kind of, like, denote their gender. So there's one called Jolly Jane or the tiger woman or the grin and nanny or like things Mm. like that. Whereas men are more aggressive names like, you know, the Kansas city slasher or the BTK, like the The Zodiac. They tend to be more what the crime was versus, Ooh, what's this woman doing? Like Mm. Jolly Jane. She sounds fun. No, she's not. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) And then according to the FBI in a study in 2012, 1% 1% of all murders are committed by serial killers. So that was uh, true. Okay. And 12% of homicides are committed by family members. Wow. Okay. So one thing I will also leave on is there has been a large decline in serial killers. So when you think about, you know, true crime and serial killers, most of them happened in the 70s the 80s and the 90s and at its prime in 1980 there were over 700 active serial killers oh my god now there's about 30 in the u.s still not that reassuring (laughs) (laughs) that didn't make me feel better (laughs) i mean maybe a little bit a little bit yeah so um so in the 80s it peaked with serial killer activity and there were 700 active serial killers based on their first kill. From the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, it was like a perfect bell curve. Oh my God. 
the reason for this is obviously people are more aware of it now. Like the the term serial killer didn't actually become a thing until 1981 mm. was the first time it was coined an actual term. Okay. So when you think about it, we have an obsession with true crime. We do. Like as a, like you and I <laughs> as a society, like it's it's morbid and like I always think this too. It's like why am I so obsessed with this or like. Mm-hmm. Oh, like I'm just gonna go like put on a face mask and watch a documentary about this like right. thing. Like the fascination behind it is humans want answers to they want to be able to resolve situations or be able to piece things together in the sense of when you think about how could anyone do something so horrendous, you want to know that this isn't like the norm. Mm-hmm. And it also is kind of a sense of comfort knowing things to look out for That's so true. in you know the 70s and 80s something hitchhiking was a lot more popular mm-hmm. and then you hear stories of like oh like a hitchhiker was found brutally murdered so then people don't hitchhike there's also the development of dna mm-hmm. so you know people can't really get away with things as easily or there's surveillance cameras everywhere you have right. your phone like i text you like I we share each other's location or Mm -hmm. you know if we're out or whatever we text each other like hey I'll be home in 10 you know like there's we can call an uber and there's a car outside our door like there's so much more precautions that are available which helps which which just helps as a whole and then police or the FBI is getting better at identifying what to do and additionally there are longer sentences for people that have been convicted mm. and shorter. Uh, there's not as much parole, which is when you talked about... Jack Unterweger. Unterweger. Mm-hmm. He was let out for like good behavior and then he went and killed people right. again. So yeah. based on these patterns, we're able to identify like what to do now. So that is why there has been, thankfully, a decline. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, super interesting. But that is interesting. There, again, like there is this this morbid curiosity as to what it does. So, oh my gosh, that is. Oh, the other thing is with women serial killers. I forgot to mention is they tend to kill people in their care. So a lot of nurses might, or oh, they might no. kill like vulnerable people, like older people, or. Or things like that. So, I mean, I have this morbid thought of, yeah, there are less female serial killers, but what if it's just because we can't, like, detect it as much? Mm -hmm. And, like, men tend to, since they are more aggressive, they do it in more brutal ways where you're able to leave a trail, which is, like, if you're slowly poisoning someone, Mm -hmm. You might just be able to be like, oh, they were sick or like, oh, they died in their sleep. Like there's not as much of a trail. And because it is typically people that they work with in close proximity, it's less obvious than Mm -hmm. like like male serial killers tend to do strangers. So it's like you have to piece things together rather than like you're not going to look at, you know, a a close friend. So that totally makes sense. Anyway, I hope I did that one justice. There was a lot of, obviously, rabbit holes, and the FBI is probably after me now. 
No, that's super interesting. Yeah. I, in college, this guy came and gave a talk. He, he's a psychopath and he wrote a book about it. Um, he was a neurologist actually, which was pretty interesting mm. and like didn't learn he was a psychopath until he was an adult, kind of like an accident. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, yeah, it's really interesting how, cause he was like, yeah, I had like a normal childhood and like, it's probably the reason I'm not a serial killer or, you know, like he seemed like an, an okay dude. So well, that's, that's so interesting. Yeah. How your circumstances can define you like that. No, truly. Because yeah. a lot of the times it was like they came from bad homes. And I mean, of course, there are some outliers where there are still people that came from bad homes. But mm. wow. yeah, uh, most of the murders or serial killers are in the U.S. But I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Thank you, Charlotte, for suggestion. Thanks, uh, personality disorders. I've, I've been wanting to talk about it for a long time. But anyway. Yeah. Thank you. That was interesting. But how many people are just sitting in their houses then being like, I want to kill someone, but I can't because it's too difficult. They just shut the blinds and they're like, not today. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I just want to reiterate, like, I was not trying to make fun of or, like, diagnose or put light or, or if I misspoke on anything, like, I apologize ahead of time. I was coming from the right place, so... Anyway, that's all. But a lot of that came from, like, the FBI, so. (laughs) (laughs) They're definitely researching you now. You're on a list. So I got most of this from two articles, one from the New York Times Magazine, one from the Huffington Post. I'll share more about those at the end. I don't want the titles to give away. Okay. What happened here? Okay. I'd like to start with a cattle farmer named Wilbur Tennant. Wilbur. Who lived in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Okay. A town of about 31,500 people right on the border with Ohio. It's in the Ohio River Valley. Pretty small. So it's it's separated from Ohio by the Ohio River. Okay. Wilbur Tennant, he was a burly guy around six feet tall with a thick Appalachian accent. Uh, Wilbur Tennant had worked as an equipment operator for the West Virginia Department of Highways and was also a bus driver for the local schools. He had a wife, Sandy, and two daughters. He'd also been a farmer all his life, a cattle farmer, taking over the farm with his four siblings after their father left them when they were kids. His family had farmed that land for more than 100 years, and him, his siblings, and his mom grew corn while expanding the herd from seven cows to 200 on 700 acres of land. Seven to 200. It's a lot of cows. That's a lot of moo. I know. (laughs) Their land was this beautiful, scrubby grazing land with copses of trees here and there and a shallow creek called Dry Run Creek that ran through the pasture that the cows drank from. I, I see a pretty picture here. Yeah, it's like... A postcard in in West Virginia. Tennant's cows were like pets to him and his family. They were gentle, and when they saw them, they'd come on over, and they'd snuggle up to them and let themselves be milked. Well, that makes me want to be a vegetarian. (laughs) I know, me too. Cows are They're really really cute. cute. They are. Uh, This is our official statement on that. Cows are cute. (laughs) 
So this was their way of life in Parkersburg, West Virginia. It was peaceful Sounds like a good and, life. and nice. All right. What's what's going to happen? <laughs> is this another Skinwalker Ranch? Oh, God. It, <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. So Wilbur Tennant's brother, Jim, Jim Tennant, worked as a laborer at a factory nearby owned by DuPont Chemical called Washington Works in Washington, West Virginia, close to Parkersburg. It's about seven miles southwest. And they manufactured various polymer products there. What's a polymer product? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I am not a. I'm not a chemist. I am not a polymer. I am bad. I was bad at chemistry in high school. So you saying that though, you probably got like a ninety-three. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was bad at chemistry. Okay, so this facility was owned and run by Dupont Chemical. DuPont was founded in 1802 in Wilmington, Delaware, by a French-American chemist, an industrialist, whose name I absolutely cannot pronounce. Eleutere Irene Dupont de Nemours. How do you know it's French? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> um, although the company started off making gunpowder, it evolved over time into what was... In 2014, the fourth largest chemical company in the world, hmm. based on their stocks. And they manufactured polymer products like Lycra, Kevlar, plastic wrap, vinyl, and nylon. So they invented nylons. Oh. Which is pretty cool. Leggings or pantyhose. Right. The company's first slogan in the 1930s was, quote, better things for better living through chemistry, end quote. So they, they wanted to... Um, kind of like rebrand themselves as we're helping the American consumer with their modern lifestyle through polymers and plastics and things like that. I have a feeling they're not going to. <laughs> it's like in the, the Graduate. Have you seen The Graduate? No. Oh, okay. Well, there's this part in the beginning where the, the main character, I think he graduated from high school or maybe college, I don't remember, but they're having this like graduation party and one of his relatives comes up to him, and it's set in the 60s, and he's like, plastics. Like, <laughs> plastics. Like, they're the new thing. You have to get into plastics. So. Oh, no. Anyway. Fast forward to 2017, DuPont merged with Dow Chemical in a merger worth about $130 billion. <laughs> <laughs> so much money. <laughs> um, and that created Dow DuPont. And then they were split into three different companies that focused on different industries. So that's DuPont. Okay. However, the story starts about 20 years before, or over 20 years. So Jim Tennant, Wilbur's brother, he was working at DuPont, and he began to get sick. This went on for years. Doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, and his health discontinued to decline. And because we live in America, Jim needed money badly. Oh. So him and his wife, Della, agreed to sell 66 acres of their land to DuPont in the early no. 1980s. No. The company needed a landfill for waste from Washington <gasps> Works, the, the plant where he worked. Um, and they decided the tenant's land would be the perfect place to put it. Of course they did. The tenants were wary of having a landfill so close to their land, but DuPont assured them they would only be filling it with non-toxic waste like ash and scrap metal. So they agreed to sell. No. DuPont named the landfill Dry Run Landfill after the creek that the cows drank from. 
how sweet would it be to be named after a landfill? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you shouldn't have. I know. Soon after, Jim, Wilbur's brother, and Della's daughters begin to cough and wheeze. Mm. So they moved to a house in town, but the rest of the family stayed on the farm. I'm sorry. This was like in the 90s? Uh, yeah. Okay. 80s and 90s. Okay. Yeah. Then Wilbur began noticing changes in the cows. No, instead not of the cows. I know the cute cows. Instead of being why is it always the cat? Like why? First it was Skinwalker Ranch. Now this, they just can never, never get a break. Catch a break. No, not the cousins uh, and not, not the, the cows. Not the cows and not the cow cousins. Nope, none of them. <laughs> <laughs> instead of being curious and friendly when they saw him. They became deranged and would charge at him. What? Then the cows started getting sick and dying. No. They're a trigger warning or content warning. This is kind of graphic. Their fur fell out in clumps. They grew lesions on their skin. Mm -hmm. Their tails became stringy. Their teeth turned black. Um, Their hooves were malformed. Their backs would hunch. They had constant diarrhea and stumbled around, and blood ran out of their noses and mouths. Their eyes turned red, and in one case, a bright, unnatural blue. Ow. Wilbur and Jim began dissecting the cows um, once they had like died. Okay. And they found that their organs were enlarged and discolored a bright green. Excuse me. It was unlike me. anything they'd ever seen before. No, no, it is not. They documented all of this on videotapes. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. Including what they believed to be the cause of all of this, a pipe was discharging bubbly greenish black water into the creek, making the water look foamy, almost soapy, and they would find dead deer tangled in the branches along the banks of the creek. What the heck? In one video, Wilbur says, this is what they expect a man's cows to drink on his own property. It's about high time that someone in the state department of something or another got off their cans. So, you know, yeah, tell them in 1996. So the tenants were like, it's DuPont, like it's the landfill. Of course, like they're contaminating our property and they're making our cows sick. So they were complaining, obviously, to like everyone they could find. And in 1996, the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection reached a deal with DuPont. The company would pay a $250,000 fine and the department would take no further action against the landfill. So that was a dead end. Hmm. And the cows kept dying. Wilbur lost 153 cows. <gasps> no. So he had 47 left. Oh, my gosh. That was good math. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I literally don't. Um, he knew he had to do something, tell someone, but no one he reached out to in Parkersburg would help him. No. Almost 2,000 people in Parkersburg worked for DuPont. DuPont seemed to own everyone in town. DuPont. Dinkelberg. <laughs> Eventually, Wilbur's neighbor had a suggestion. A local friend of theirs, Alma Holland White, had a grandson named Rob Billet, who was an environmental lawyer. Hmm. In 1998, Wilbur Tennant gave Billet a call. I hope I'm saying that right. Billet. I think that's how you say Billet. it. Billet was working at a firm in Cincinnati called Taft, Statinius, and Hollister which was well-known for its work defending chemical companies, so including DuPont. Okay. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Tenant would have been an unusual client for the firm to represent because it's the other side. Yeah. Um, Isn't that like a 
conflict of interest or something? Or I mean, they, I guess they can represent whoever they want. Yeah. But, but yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. Um, but Billet agreed to meet with him. He felt it was the right thing to do, and he wanted to do it for his grandmother. Mm. She, anything for me, Mom. Exactly, because she <laughs> knew them. So a week later, Wilbur Tennant and his wife Sandy uh, drove to Taft's offices in Cincinnati with boxes of documents, photos, and the VHS tapes that they had filmed. VHS. Okay. I know. Uh, Looking slightly out of place in his farmer's flannel, he told his whole story to the corporate suits, and he showed them the tapes of his sick, suffering cows. Billet said to himself, this is is bad. (laughs) Like, there's something really bad going on here, and he agreed right away to take the case. Rob Billet, the lawyer, was an expert when it came to hazardous waste. He was on the environmental team with his law firm partner, Thomas Terp, and they worked together on cases involving Superfund sites. So in 1980, Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, also known as Superfund, in which the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, taxes chemical and petroleum companies and then uses this money to clean up contaminated areas called Superfund sites or forces the companies to pay for the cleanup. As part of Terp's legal team, Billet learned the ins and outs of Superfund cases, how to collect records and data, what regulations existed, and which pollutants are causing these problems. Mm. So, for example, there's a Superfund site um, next to to Galena. Oh. Because Galena used to be a lead mining town. Oh. And so, it's like, there's... I did not know that. Galena's pretty. Yeah, no, the town's beautiful, but, like, next to Galena, (laughs) (laughs) there's, like, a giant dump where the mine was, and it's, like, contaminated with lead. Oh, that's... So, also, um, I took a whole class on lead in college. I love that. It was intense, but there's also, I forget, I I can do, I'll probably do an episode on this. There's also a public housing facility or neighborhood in Indiana that is now a super fun site. Hmm. Anyway, okay. So Billet knew things about Superfund sites and hazardous waste. And although the tenant case was highly unusual for the firm to take on, Terp gave Billet the green light. And then Billet reached out to a local West Virginia lawyer named Larry Winter for help with the case. And Winter was astonished at, at this whole thing. Um, he said, his taking on the tenant case, given the type of practice Taft had, I found it to be inconceivable 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 they forged ahead filing a federal suit against dupont in the southern district of west virginia in the summer of 1999 this did not bode well for the tenants however once the news of the suit got out people they considered friends in parkersburg turned on them they would ignore them on the street and they'd walk out of restaurants when they walked in oh they had to change churches four times so they were suing dupont Mm-hmm. at this law firm that normally represents DuPont. <laughs> and DuPont had a lawyer, a man named Bernard Riley. He contacted Rob Billet and informed him that, okay, like, you're suing us. Sure. Like, well, the cows, you know, like, we'll, <laughs> we'll conduct a study of the tenant's property with six different veterinarians. Three would be chosen by DuPont and three were from the EPA, like, trying to give it more like 
make it more objective, I guess. In the end, the vets came to the conclusion that the cow's deaths had nothing to do with the environment. It was the tenant's fault. They weren't taking care of their animals. Excuse me. Naturally, Wilbur Tennant was enraged by this. Well, yeah. He'd been a farmer for decades. He knew how to raise cattle. Well, I have never. Exactly. (laughs) Tennant and Billet were in constant communication, and Billet was doing everything he could to dig up more information on DuPont and what was actually going on at the dry run landfill next to his property. Mm. Eventually, he found something in a document from DuPont that gave him pause. It was a chemical that they called PFOA. Pofa. And despite his experience, he'd never heard of it, and it wasn't on any lists of regulated substances. Mm. He talked to a chemistry expert who had heard of a similar substance called PFOS, which was used by chemical company 3M, to manufacture Scotch Guard, hmm. a water and stain repellent for furniture, fabric, and carpet. <laughs> this um, is an ad. You can get it at Target. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's a thing. Billet needed to know more. He petitioned DuPont to provide all of their documentation on this substance, PFOA. But they said no. Surprise, Sus. surprise. Sus. Um, their lawyer, who I just mentioned, Bernard Riley... He wrote an email to his colleagues. He said, quote, the shit is about to hit the fan in West Virginia. Hey. The lawyer for the farmer finally realizes the surfacant issue. Fuck him. End quote. <laughs> I, I, I love, like, I, I bet the journalist got this through, like, a FOIA request or something and was, like, had to read through all the emails and was, like, I just, <laughs> uh, anyway. But a court order forced DuPont to, to send Billet 110,000 pages of documents on this chemical, some dating back to the 1950s, which contained medical reports, studies, correspondence, and more shoved in no particular order into dozens of boxes delivered to the Taft offices. Hmm. Petty. I know. <laughs> it took him months to go through all of the documents, huddled between the stacks of boxes, but slowly Rob Billet began to piece it all together. So, what did he find out? PFOA stands for, oh God, perfluorooctanic acid. DuPont called it C8, but I'm going to call it PFOA. It was first developed by 3M, the other chemical company, in 1947. And in 1951, DuPont began buying it from 3M in order to produce polytetrafluoroethylene, better known as Teflon. The coating used for nonstick cookware and a host of other industrial and commercial uses. They also used it in, like, the atomic bomb or something. <laughs> okay. I don't know. But they were using it at the Washington Works plant in Parkersburg, hmm. where they were producing Teflon. At this time, plastics, as I mentioned, were becoming more common in American homes, and claims that certain chemicals used in their production caused cancer and other problems were snuffed out by industry lobbyists who launched intense smear campaigns on scientists who had doubts about like plastics and the chemistry and stuff Mm kind of similar to the pr efforts of tobacco companies in later years sure who were trying to convince the public that cigarettes weren't bad for you however employees at washington works already suspected that pfoa was toxic back in the 1950s when they first started using it Mm. But in 1961, DuPont introduced its nonstick Teflon-coated Happy Pan 
to great commercial success. Mm. To clarify, PFOA is not Teflon, but it's used in the production of Teflon to keep it from clumping together during production. Okay. Um, and it's a synthetic compound not found anywhere in nature. So it's man-made. Once DuPont started buying PFOA from 3M, 3M gave them instructions on how to dispose of it. It should be incinerated or sent to chemical waste facilities. But DuPont did not do this. Of course they didn't. Instead, they dumped it in the creek. Well, yeah. Instead, they pumped it into the Ohio River. Those bitches. They also dumped sludge containing PFOA into pits on the plant property where it seeped into the ground and then into the groundwater which was drinking water for 100,000 people. Oh, no. And this would continue for more than 50 years. <gasps> In the meantime, DuPont was secretly studying the effects of PFOA <gasps> on living things, finding that it binds to blood plasma and can therefore circulate to different organs throughout the body. And it doesn't degrade quickly. It's called a forever chemical, so it stays in nature like for years and years. Um the half-life of it in the human body is a little bit over four years. So after eight years, it can theoretically be, be gone. gone from the body. But if you're being exposed to it over and over, then it's like, it's right. not going to, like yeah. you, know what, you know what I mean? Sure. In the 1960s, DuPont's hush-hush experiments discovered that exposure to PFOA increases the size of the liver in rats, rabbits, and dogs, just like the tenants' cows in 30 years later. But what could it do to humans? In the 1970s, DuPont found that workers at the Parkersburg plant, or Washington Works plant in Washington, close to Parkersburg, um, they, they found that they had high concentrations of PFOA in their blood. But they didn't tell the EPA. 3M was also doing studies, and they found that exposure to PFOA caused birth defects in rats. Hmm. A woman named Sue Bailey, who worked with PFOA at Washington Works, was pregnant when she was moved to the Teflon line at DuPont, where she pumped PFOA waste into pits. She gave birth to her third child, Bucky, in January 1981. He was born with facial deformities. Oh. He had half of a nose, only one nostril, and one of his eyes was deformed, with the eyelid draping down his cheek. Oh, Bucky. Doctors were baffled. They didn't know how long he would live. Um, he's fine now. He's oh. like 40-something. He has kids. Like, he's great. Oh, Bucky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love that for him. Me too. I'm, I'm happy for him. Later that year, DuPont removed all women from the lines where they were exposed to PFOA. And they didn't really tell them why. DuPont also secretly monitored 50 of its female employees to see if the chemical caused birth defects in humans and found that, including Bucky, two of seven children born to pregnant women working with PFOA had facial deformities. Jeez. DuPont did not disclose this information to anyone, and they later went back on these findings saying, like, nah, actually, it's, like, not a thing. And they reinstalled all the female workers where they would come into contact with PFOA. Sue Bailey said, Bucky's mom, said DuPont never admitted to anything, and the plant foreman would treat her differently, like, after she went back to work, because she was, she believed that his, Bucky's birth defects were caused by the chemicals there. 
In the 1980s, DuPont continued to secretly test employees, telling them that they were routine medical checks, so they would, like, take their blood and stuff. In 1982 and 83, DuPont and 3M learned that there were dangerous levels of PFOA present in their employees, in the, in the blood of their employees. Jeez. In 1984, DuPont learned that PFOA was present in the local water supply. They secretly sent out employees to fill water jugs at local gas stations near the plant, and then would test it. And they also learned that PFOA dust was traveling further than, than the limits of the facility once it was vented from the chimneys. This also was not disclosed to anyone. So around this time, a group of DuPont executives got together and talked about this problem, the PFOA problem. And they discussed maybe cutting emissions at Washington Works and installing like vents or scrubbers in the vents and stuff like that to reduce the like, amount my guess is they don't because it probably costs too much money and that would have been the right thing to do well yeah so <laughs> so they said that like the additional costs weren't justified mm. because it wouldn't reduce the company's liability so like mm. um they basically said if we do nothing like we're right now we're already liable for the past 30 years this has been going on and so if if we end up being punished for this in court or something um if we install these safety measures or whatever it won't make our penalty better so it's it doesn't matter in the long run for our company in 1991 dupont created an internal safety regulation for pfoa in drinking water one part per billion at this time, they knew that the local water supplies contained three times that, and they did not tell anyone. So in the late 80s, when they knew they needed a landfill for the PFOA contaminated waste, um, that's when they bought Jim Tennant's land. And by 1990, they had dumped 7,100 7, tons of sludge into the landfill, all the while knowing that it drained into the Tennant's Creek resulting in extremely high levels in the water they knew this and they didn't tell anyone not even when the cows started dying and when they did that whole study with the veterinarians like they knew the whole time and they blamed it on i knew it i knew it i knew it in the 1990s dupont linked pfoa to testicular cancer pancreatic cancer liver tumors and dna damage in animals Mm -hmm. as well as prostate cancer in humans and the company decided to search for alternatives. They eventually found one that looked promising. It was a similar compound. It wasn't as toxic, and it was flushed out of the body more quickly. However, DuPont decided not to go forward with using it. Why? Because the products they manufactured with PFOA brought in a billion dollars a year. Don't you just love unchecked capitalism? When they kill people for profit? It's Good lord. Uh, the lawyer, Rob Billet, said of the documents that DuPont sent him, he said it was one of those things where you can't believe you're reading what you're reading, that it's actually been put in writing. Truly. It's the kind of stuff you always heard about happening, but you never thought you'd see written down. In August 2000, Rob Billet, the lawyer, contacted DuPont's lawyer, Riley, and told him, he's like, I know everything. Like, <laughs> I know what you did last summer. Right. And the summer before that. <laughs> exactly. And before that, and for the past 50 years. 
The tenants ended up settling with DuPont for an undisclosed amount of money, hmm. but Rob Billet was concerned about the people who'd been drinking the contaminated water near Parkersburg for decades. And he decided, like, he had to go all the way to the top. So he drafted a 972-page public brief Jeez, detailing like, everything. How long did that take? Probably a very long time. Because it took me, like, what, like four days to write my four pages of notes? <laughs> I know, right? So it detailed everything he learned about DuPont and included 136 exhibits, so, like, pieces of evidence. And he sent... He sent it to the head of every regulatory body, including the EPA and the U.S. Attorney General, mm. in March 2001. His colleagues called it Rob's famous letter. <laughs> DuPont freaked out. I can't... I thought it was a secret. You weren't <laughs> supposed to tell anyone. Right. And they requested a gag order. Um, they desperately wanted to silence Billet, but a court denied the gag order. Nice. So he continued to send all the information he had to the EPA. Hit send. Exactly. Except I think he faxed it because it was like 2001. Could you imagine faxing <laughs> 900 pages? I don't even know how a fax machine works. I mean, like I kind of do. No, I can't imagine that. No. <laughs> so the way that the EPA regulates chemicals doesn't really make much sense. Under the Toxic Substances Control Act, which was passed in the 1970s, it can only test chemicals to find out if they're toxic if companies have already shown the EPA that they're toxic and pose an unreasonable risk. That made my head hurt. So basically, companies have to come to the EPA and say, this is a toxic chemical. And then the EPA will say, okay, we'll test it. But otherwise, they won't test oh. a chemical. And why would companies self-report that information? Right. It's, it's, the idea is kind of like that chemical companies would self-regulate. Sure. Uh, we, we're seeing now how that how that's how that's <laughs> that worked out really well. Um, when this bill was passed, existing chemicals were grandfathered into the bill under lobbyist pressure. So, like, Gosh. they were like, "Okay, we're already using all these chemicals. Like, they're just under the bill, and we don't need to look at them any further." Mm, shady. The burden of proof is so high to prove to the EPA that, like you know, you need to ban or investigate a chemical, that the EPA could not ban asbestos, which kills thousands of people a year in the U.S. Um, if you've ever seen that commercial for, do you have mesothelioma yeah. or whatever? <laughs> like, it's a problem. Yeah. As of 2016, of the over 80,000 chemicals on the market in the U.S., the EPA has only banned nine. Mm. And only a handful have been tested. Oh. In 2016, the law was updated to make it easier for the EPA to test chemicals, which is good, I guess, for us, but which did not help the people of Parkersburg at the time because that was in 2016. Right. In 2002, the EPA decided to investigate PFOA themselves. They found that people drinking contaminated water weren't the only ones at risk. It's also dangerous to the general public, for example, to people using Teflon pans. The EPA learned that PFOA had been detected in U.S. blood banks. DuPont had known this information since 1976. Oh, no. In 2003, the average American had four to five parts per billion of PFOA in their blood. 3M stopped producing PFOA in 2000 after lab studies in monkeys showed that even low doses of PFOA could cause serious health issues. And DuPont had been buying it from them, so they just built a new facility in North Carolina to make it themselves. 
Oh, my God. <laughs> In 2005, DuPont settled with the EPA for $16.5 million for violating the Toxic Substances Control Act, though they did not have to admit liability, which is so often the case with these big companies. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I feel like people, like, it was a civil case, but I feel like people should go to jail for that, you know? A hundred percent. I don't know. The cows. And, yeah, humans and cows. Bucky. Bucky. Uh, It was the largest civil administrative penalty the EPA had ever gotten at the time. However, $16.5 million is less than 2% of the profits that DuPont got from PFOA that year. So it's really the drop in the bucket for them. It doesn't really matter. Because they get billions of dollars or whatever. Okay, let's rewind a bit Okay, to before this uh, payment to the EPA, uh-huh. when all of this is still being worked out. Sure. In 2001, Billet decided that a class action lawsuit was in order, which is when a group of people with the same or similar in- injuries caused by um, the same thing, same product or chemical, sure. they file suit against something or someone as a group. Uh, even though it had the potential to taint the reputation of Taft Law even further, Rob Billet went through with it with the support of his colleagues. Hmm. Now I want to talk about a man named Joseph Keeger. Keeger was a PE teacher in Parkersburg. Uh, his wife, Darlene's ex-husband, used to be a chemist in DuPont's PFOA lab. DuPont paid for everything, his education, his mortgage. They also gave him free PFOA. The gym teacher? Uh, no. Oh. Um, his, his wife, Darlene's ex-husband. Oh. When he was working for DuPont. So they gave him free, free chemicals, and Darlene used it in the dishwasher and to clean the car. Sometimes her husband came home with what the workers called Teflon flu, fever, nausea, diarrhea, and vomiting. One day he told Darlene he wasn't allowed to bring his work clothes home with him anymore because DuPont had found links between PFOA and health problems for women and birth defects in children, which we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Six years later, Darlene had to get an emergency hysterectomy. No. And yeah, she was wondering then, like, was it from the chemicals? Yeah, probably. And then so Joseph Keeger, her current husband, uh, his brother had also worked at DuPont and died... At the age of 21, during <gasps> surgery for ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease. Oh, no. He also, um, Joseph or Joe, also knew teenagers in their neighborhood who had developed testicular cancer. It, like, as a teen. As teenagers, yeah. So back to the class action lawsuit. Joseph and Arlene had gotten a letter in the mail along with their water bill that said that, quote, low concentrations of PFOA had been found in their drinking water, but that it wasn't dangerous. Keeger thought some of the language in the letter sounded sketchy, and he called around to every agency he could find. He even called DuPont, and they all gave him the same bullshit non-answers. Of course. Until an EPA scientist referred him to Rob Billet, the lawyer. Mm. The scientist apparently said, good God, Joe, what the hell is that stuff doing in your water? And Darlene said that she kept thinking back to, you know, her his, her hysterectomy, the fact that her ex-husband had to leave his clothing at work, and she wanted to know, like, what does DuPont have to do with right. our drinking water? So Joe Heger became the lead plaintiff in the class action suit filed in August 2001. Nice. And sure enough, after they filed the class action suit, uh, friends stopped talking to them, 
strangers threw water bottles with homemade um, PFOA labels at their house and called them and harassed them. Rude. Darlene said, one man wouldn't quit shouting at me. He kept saying, you're taking my job away and you're going to have to feed my kids and pay my bills if DuPont packs up and leaves because of this. Tests revealed that six water districts, along with dozens of private wells in the area serving about 70,000 people, were contaminated above the levels that DuPont deemed safe. One was even seven times over the limit. Wow. And some people had been drinking this water for decades. Right. The problem for Rob Billet was that in the EPA's eyes, as we kind of talked about, PFOA was not a regulated chemical, and there was no federal or state limits on its consumption. No one knew or had proven that it had long-term health effects in humans. The only limit that existed was the one DuPont had set for itself, which is one part per billion in drinking water. DuPont decided, now that they were being sued again, that it was going to reevaluate that number. Uh, in the meantime, three lawyers who'd worked for DuPont joined the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, so sort of a conflict of interest, and with a team of DuPont scientists and scientists from the West Virginia Department of Environmental Protection, they came up with a new safe limit, which was 150 parts per billion, as opposed to the previous limit of one part per billion. Mm. Um, in contrast... Rob Billet, the lawyer, uh, worked with some toxicologists, and they had agreed on a safe limit of 0.2 parts per billion. So in contrast to the 150 parts per billion, which is a pretty big difference. Yeah, I'd say. Um, so Rob Billet needed a new approach, and he found one in West Virginia's medical monitoring legislation. This was a new concept for West Virginia in which if someone can prove they've been exposed to a toxin... The defendant has to pay for regular medical testing for this person. Mm -hmm. And if the plaintiff gets sick, they can sue for damages, the company or whoever. In September 2004, DuPont settled the class action suit, promising to install water filtration systems in the affected water districts and to pay out $70 million to affected people and to fund a study to research if there are any probable links between PFOA exposure and diseases. And if they found a link, DuPont would pay for medical monitoring in perpetuity, so forever, for these people. Hmm. But until the results came back, plaintiffs weren't allowed to sue DuPont. So Rob Billet, the lawyer, wanted to complete the data on PFOA exposure since DuPont was relying on its own data for this. Hmm. And so they decided to receive their share of the $70 million. The plaintiffs were required to undergo a medical exam. So basically, they had to give up a vial of their blood, and they would get $400, which, like, like fair. Like, I would do that. Yeah. They wanted to know if they'd been exposed and what the consequences of that exposure could be. This ended up with the scientists, the scientific panel who were studying these effects of PFOA had data from nearly 70,000 people. Wow. They all showed up. and <laughs> Well, yeah, I'd get my $400. <laughs> I know, right? And it took a while to test all of it and to sort through the data. Sure, I'm sure. Rob Billet and all the members of the class action lawsuit, they waited, they waited, they kept waiting. Things were getting expensive for his law firm. People were getting impatient and called him constantly to ask about the study's progress. Mm. Wilbur Tennant, the cowman um, who had cancer, died Aww. of a heart attack. No, rest in peace. That was in 2009. And his wife, Sandy, died two years later, also from cancer. Oh, 
Rabbit was under enormous stress and he started experiencing these weird medical episodes where he had blurry vision, slurred speech, and difficulty moving one side of his body. Was he having a stroke? No. Oh. They they never, well, I don't think they ever found out what it was. So I watched a movie about this, Dark Waters. Oh, with Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a fictional one. In that movie, they said it was a TIA, which is like like a stroke, but not quite a stroke. Okay. Seven years went by. And in December of 2011, Rob Billet got a phone call. The results of the study were ready. When the science panel released its findings in 2012, it found a probable link between PFOA and six conditions, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, high cholesterol, and pregnancy-induced hypertension, which is a potentially life-threatening condition that can cause seizures, kidney failure, miscarriage, and birth defects. Hmm. In response... Over 3,500 people filed personal injury lawsuits against DuPont at a rate of four cases a year. If they went that route, DuPont would be in court until 2890. Wow. So lots of, lots of, yeah, lots of lawsuits. That's a lot. The first plaintiff, represented by Billet, was awarded $1.6 million. Jeez. The second received $5.6 million. The third got $12.5 million. Oh, my God. Eventually, instead of having to go through each of these cases, DuPont settled all of the cases for $670.7 million. In 2013, as part of an agreement with the EPA, DuPont ceased production of PFOA and chemical companies around the world are phasing them out. DuPont, so I said earlier that it merged with Dow Chemical and then like broke up into different companies. So one of its its new chemical company or subsidiary, I'm not sure exactly what its de- designation is, but it's called Chemours or Chemours, Chemours. Um, and that's the one that focuses on chemicals. And so they switched to using similar compounds that break down more quickly the alternative they talked about and then decided not to use. Mm. The company claims that they're safe but they're still not regulated by the EPA, so no one knows. And I doubt that they're safe. Right. Scientists around the world have called for halting worldwide production of PFOA, its replacements, and all fluorochemicals, which is the family of chemicals that PFOA belongs to. Today, Parkersburg's water is still contaminated with high levels of PFOA. DuPont's medical monitoring program turned out to be extremely complicated and not that many people enrolled um jim Tennant, wilbur's brother his wife della suffers from high cholesterol thyroid problems heart disease and severe osteoarthritis her younger daughter was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 37 and later developed thyroid cancer and gallbladder disease joe keeger from the class action suit had a heart attack Mm. But continues to fight DuPont and raise awareness of the dangers of these chemicals. To replace PFOA in its Teflon production and the production of other products, DuPont has adapted a chemical, a group of chemicals called Gen X, which have already been found in waterways near DuPont plants mm-hmm. and in the well fields in towns near Parkersburg. No one knows their potential effects on human health. And this is a quote from a direct quote from the New York Times article. It says, where scientists have tested for the presence of PFOA in the world, they have found it. PFOA is in the blood or vital organs of Atlantic salmon, swordfish, striped mullet, gray seals, common cormorants, 
Alaskan polar bears, brown pelicans, sea turtles, sea eagles, Midwestern bald eagles, California sea lions, and Laysan albatrosses on Sand Island, a wildlife refuge on Midway Atoll in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean, about halfway between North America and Asia. Um, One analysis of blood banks from around the world showed that nearly all of the blood contained PFOA. The lone exception was a set of archived samples that had been collected from the Korean War veterans before 1952. Oh my gosh. This includes you and me. 99% of Americans have PFOA in their blood. We get it through the air, through our diet, through our use of nonstick cookware, um, or we might have drank tainted water. Hmm. And the Environmental Working Group has found... These floral chemicals in 94 water districts across 27 states. The New York Times has like a whole list of like all the states and how many people are affected by it. It's a large number. Billet said, quote, the thought that DuPont could get away with this for so long that they could keep making a profit off it, then get the agreement of the governmental agencies to slowly phase it out, only to replace it with an alternative with unknown human effects. We told the agencies about this in 2001, and they've essentially done nothing. That's 14 years of this stuff continuing to be used, continually to be in the drinking water all over the country. DuPont just quietly switches over to the next substance, and in the meantime, they fight everyone who's been injured by it. And also, some people think that, so, like, DuPont split into these different companies, including Camores, mm-hmm. um, the chemical company, and because they're smaller companies... They don't have the money to, like, pay out all of these, you know, settlements and stuff. Mm. So they think it's an attempt to dodge that, basically. Of course. And so that the company would then have to go bankrupt and then the taxpayers have to pay for, like, cleanup and and stuff like that. There's a growing movement to investigate the hundreds of unregulated so-called forever chemicals. However, there's there are no federally enforceable limits on any... PFAs, so the similar chemicals including PFOA, in drinking water, groundwater, or soils, or any requirements to clean it up under the Superfund law. Only five states have placed limits on a handful of PFAs, and the EPA can only test for 29 kinds in drinking water, but there are like hundreds. So there's no limit in drinking water at this point that can be enforced by the government. Great. Yeah. PFOA has been found in thousands of household products, including carpeting, Teflon pans, waterproof clothes, dental floss, kitty litter, cosmetics, and fast food wrappers. No. It's released into the air when pans are heated to broiling temperatures. Um, It was banned in Teflon in 2013, so it's not used anymore. But as I said before, it was replaced by Gen X, which they say is safer, but no one actually knows. Mm -hmm. So... Crap. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I messaged you about the pans. I was like, <laughs> we can't do this. Okay. Yeah. It's also found in products like sprays, like um, Scotch Guard that are used to treat furniture and mm. leather and clothes and stuff. Um, and as well as paints and cleaning products, shampoo, floor wax, stain removal. So nothing is safe. Right. Okay. Cool. And... And dust is also a huge source of PFOA that people inhale. Great. But one of the most shocking ones for me is, I'm sorry to tell you this. Okay. Okay. Laid on me. Microwave popcorn. No, no. Don't do that to me. I'm so sorry. Don't do that to me. I'm so sorry. 
This is how I die. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. no. PFOA was used as an oil-resistant coating on the inside of popcorn bags. I'm I'm doomed. I literally <laughs> used to rip them apart and like eat the butter off of it. I know. Me too. Okay. Okay. Though it was banned by the FDA in 2016. 2016. Some bags use a different chemical that that isn't PFOA, but that degrades into PFOA and could even be more toxic. So I guess not all of them, but some of them, and I don't know which ones. Um, toxicologists estimate that microwave popcorn could account for about 20% of the PFOA levels measured in an individual consuming 10 bags a year if 1% of the they're called fluorotelomeres, are metabolized to PFOA. So, so like, it breaks down into PFOA, and if 1% of all of it consumed by a person through 10 bags breaks down to PFOA, then it, it consists of 20% of the PFOA levels in our blood. Okay. Uh, that's really complicated, but it's, it's not great. Avoiding PFOA is extremely difficult. Some sites I found said to avoid food contact paper treated with grease resistant coating so like when you get a double cheeseburger from mcdonald's like the how it's kind of like waxy paper because they don't want the oil to like that's what it is so they recommend like removing it from the wrapping really quickly after you get it like don't leave it in there so it doesn't i'm doomed man like literally everything i consume (laughs) popcorn and fast food are you kidding I know, me i know the popcorn was like devastating to me no. um because it's so good i just bought a new box i want some i know when i was writing this too i was like i really want popcorn because i'm no, thinking I, about it literally before we started i was like oh i could really go for some popcorn i know popcorn. i know god damn it um yeah also they said to avoid so it, it can also be on like coated cardboard boxes so i guess like the McNugget box, maybe? Oh, I don't know. Um, I love McNuggets. I know. They also suggest to avoid anti-aging cosmetics containing, um, like, PFAs, a similar chemical. And people living in areas with contaminated water should consider drinking bottled water. And also... Yeah, but, like, what if the plastic on the bottled water has something? I don't... I don't know. I don't... You can't escape it. We gotta go to Mars Um, or something. I don't know. We're doomed. (laughs) Also, they recommend not using nonstick cookware. If you... If you Google, like, will Teflon give me cancer, most of the websites are, like, probably not. That doesn't make me feel bad. But, like... It's not gonna flat out say, like, yeah, here's a sale. Right. It's, like... If you heat a pan to a broiling temperature, that's when these chemicals will, like, vaporize. Okay. Um, so, I guess if you don't heat it to, like, super high temps, then it says it's probably fine. But also, like, I don't know. So, that's why I, like, mm. and do you remember when my when my dad was here and he saw that pot we had? Mm-hmm. Which I... I'm sorry about that. I put it in the dishwasher and I like didn't realize and it kind of like messed up the coating on the bottom. It's okay. And he put like that sticker on it. It was like, throw this away. Um, I guess that's why. Okay. So we're, our, our blood is contaminated with these chemicals because of corporate greed and um, it's pretty bad. Well, thanks assholes. Thanks, yeah. I hate it. And no one went to jail. No one went to jail so. and they, so, okay, wait. So the lawsuit was settled at for like what six hundred million. The so something? they had to pay the EPA 
$16.5 million. And then mm-hmm. they settled the class action lawsuit among these like 70,000 people with like $70 million. Like collectively. Yeah. And then they um, settled the individual injury suits after the class action was settled with like 670 million dollars divided amongst the 3,000 whatever people so if they make a billion a year from these products like it basically was like you said a kick in the bucket like nothing nothing yeah a drop in the bucket so god yeah it sucks i'm so angry okay me too and yeah rab billet is still out there like fighting dupont in court so i will go out there with him and just be like yes (laughs) i'll get a sign and just say like fuck capitalism i know so i got most of this information from the new york times magazine article from january 2016 by nathaniel rich called the lawyer who became dupont's worst nightmare and then a huff post article from i think 2015 by mariah blake with media by emily Cassa called welcome to beautiful parkersburg west virginia and the movie that this, like, they, that they made about this is called Dark Waters. It came out in 2019. Um, a lot of people made cameos in it, like Jim Tennant and Bucky, Bucky. and uh, Rob and his wife and, like, a bunch of people, uh, oh. Joe and, yeah. And it's almost 4 a.m. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. So, All right. well, thank you for that. That was yeah. awful. Um, like, in You're the welcome. best way. Mm. Jesus. Okay. Well, that makes me angry. Like, yeah. what what do we do? Like, there's nothing we can do, really. There's nothing we can like, do. I'm I'm gonna try not to eat microwave popcorn. No, I'm like I can't do that. I'm sorry, I can't. No. I can't. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening to episode twenty eight. Tune in next week for twenty nine. We will be back on our paranormal ways. Ooh. We would love to give a shout out to Kirsten. Yes. She gave us our first, like, fan mail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She sent us these lovely beads from... By RG... RG beads. Underscore beads. Yes. Follow them on Instagram. They're, They're super beautiful. Great. I'm so happy with them. They one Mine says sleepy head. Mine says stay sleepy. They're for our, our six-month, like episode anniversary yeah we've been doing this happy half a year so thanks for sharing thanks for letting us take over your airwaves once a week yeah we we love you we love you guys so um we would also love to give credit to the artists that have helped us our music is composed by colin whitlish and music production is by justin too and our cover is by erica chase would you like to tell them where to find us you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can email us at theinsomniareport at gmail.com if you want to say hi, suggest topics, or submit your own listener report. So we will link some sources in the description. Um, as we mentioned earlier, eventually when we have our website good to go, we will have more of our sources from each story in there. Thank you for Thank you for being here, and I'm going to just stop. I'm tired. It's 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 literally almost four a.m. So I know. It's cute. Okay. Okay. Literal insomnia report today. <laughs> so, um, stay spooky and sleepy, and good night. Good night. <laughs>